You're listening to Deeply Curious, a podcast about our ever-evolving philosophy of life and faith and the curious pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. In this episode, we're talking about crisis averted. (laughs) My name is Cody Jensen, and joining me, as always, is the woman who makes all the love songs make sense, Mm. Sarah Jensen, my wife. Deeply Curious and all the art that we create is made possible by you and the members of the Jensen AV Club. This week's show is produced by Christian B. Schmidt, Joel Kai Linz, Amber Day, Greg and Christy Jensen, and Jeff Stevens. If you'd like to be a feature producer of Deeply Curious, you can do that by going to our Patreon. That is JensenAV.club. Uh, link is also in the show notes, but that is Jensen, J-E-N, S-E-N-A-V dot club. Yes. So in this show, uh, we want to, we're going to start the conversation um, with things that we have learned this week. Um, But then we're going to move over to um, crisis averted because um, I believe that I am out of my existential crisis, made it through. You did Um, it. And so now that I am through that, I think I have perspective on why, how, when, what, where. Um, and we're going to talk about it. Since you guys have been the guinea pigs of listening to the whole thing yeah. happen, you might as well know the ending, right? That's right. Um, but first, things we learned this week. I was surfing the internet like I did a lot of this week. <laughs> and I saw somebody posted something about that there are two different kinds of people. There are people who have what's called an internal narrative and then there are people who don't have an internal narrative and they just have nonverbal thoughts. And most people aren't aware that other people think differently in that way. So like an internal narrative would be like you literally wake up and think, I need to get out of bed, comma, and make coffee, period. It's like a grammatical, you think in sentences, in grammatical sentences. Um, and then like nonverbal thoughts is the much more abstract, obviously, way of thinking. It's not grammatical sentences. Um, I saw this one girl said that she thinks in pictures. So like when she wakes up, she'll just see a coffee cup until and until she makes her morning coffee, the coffee cup doesn't go away. And so there's like different ways of nonverbal thoughts. Um, but I found it really fascinating because I've never heard any sort of psychology on that, nor is there like a lot of research because you can't really research how people think internally. Mm -hmm. Um, But I asked Cody if you had an internal narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, it was like literally first thing in the morning. Right. Like Sarah woke up and I like sat up next to her and I was like, good morning. And then she was like, whenever you think, do you have, uh, do you think in complete sentences? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Because I had read it the night before and they were talking about what, how you think when you wake up or whatever, like I need to get out of bed, et cetera. And I was just thinking about it because I, I don't think that way, but I never really realized it. And I didn't even really know that people think otherwise, like in, it's in movies and stuff, you know, there are like internal narratives where the character is talking, you know, over themselves walking down the hallway or something, Mm -hmm. right? And it is grammatical, but I just thought that was how they um, like visualized it Mm -hmm. for people. I didn't realize that that's like a real thing. How did you feel whenever you read it in novels? Because they'll do internal thoughts in novels when it's first person. I kind of thought it was the same thing. It was just, well, this is the way that we have to explain it because it's, it doesn't make sense Right, because you can't you can't you write do a abstract book about thought. abstract thought. Yeah, it's like or like you turn the page and it's a picture of a coffee cup, and you're like, right. oh, she's thinking about making coffee. <laughs> exactly, and and you can't really explain like, well, whenever I think, I think in pictures and blah blah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so I just thought it was like the way we use to describe. I didn't know it was like a a real thing, and yeah. so I was confused because I don't think that way, mm-hmm. and I don't even really have words to describe. It legitimately is just like nonverbal thoughts. Like I don't, like I woke up the other morning when I asked you, do you Mm -hmm. have an internal narrative? And I, the, everything that went through my head was I need to wake up. I should get ready. I wish it wasn't raining outside because I want to go walk to the coffee shop. But none of that was sentences. I thought all of those things and I like was aware of all of them, but I 
it wasn't a sentence like that, mm-hmm. which is why I always thought they just, that's how they explain it in movies because you can't explain nonverbal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting because I do think in, uh, I have an internal narrative. Yeah. I think very clearly in sentences. Right. Um, and, you know, for me, like whenever I woke up that same morning, cause I recounted it to Sarah, like I woke up and in my head in complete sentences, I'm thinking, I think it's around 8.30 um, because, of, you know, I'm looking at the the light that's coming through the window or whatever, mm-hmm. like gauging what time it is and like, oh, yeah, I should probably get up and read. Uh, I don't really feel like it, but I suppose I should anyway. All right, I'm getting up and like sit up mm-hmm. like I should probably make some tea. Oh, I forgot we don't have Earl Grey. Um, mm-hmm. Like, all right. And like just like literally. You're just like talking to yourself. I'm talking to myself. Head. Yes. Talking to myself is is my thoughts. Right. And um. Uh, this morning so that was a few days ago and i've been thinking about how sarah does not think in an internal narrative which the interesting thing is i I cannot even fathom what it's like to think like sarah and she can't fathom what it's like to think in complete sentences um so we can't know each other's internal experience Mm -hmm. which i mean you could go down you could go down a rabbit hole of (laughs) of that um philosophy real quick real fast but um I was just thinking about how she thinks that way and doesn't think in complete sentences. And I was like, okay. So I just stared at um, some decorations in our apartment and I was like, okay, think about it without talking about it. <laughs> and like, I just stared at it and I was like, and, I got nothing. <laughs> and there was like no words. And so I was like, what am I thinking about? And I was like, well, I'm thinking about nothing because I, I mean, even if I was thinking about something in mm-hmm. that 15 seconds that I paused, I I have no idea what it was mm-hmm. because it was never verbalized. Mm-hmm. So like, no, I felt like I was literally just in a trance of no thought. Mm-hmm. Well, what's, and I, so after we had that initial conversation, we started talking about, and this is just a theory. I haven't read up on this kind of stuff at all. I just saw this one person post this thing and it fascinated me. So I'm not like, None of this is scientific, you know what I mean? And But anyway, I was thinking about it, and I was like, I wonder if that's why I have such a hard time uh, speaking. Thing. Like, whenever I try to speak an idea that I have, I get all jumbled. Like, I, I'm not – I'm never saying the words that I want. I'm never speaking the sentences that I, that I have in my head, even though they're not in my head. But you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I, I'm never – I'm doing it right now. I'm, like, fumbling over my words. Mm-hmm. But when I sit down and write something out, it just is like the easiest thing in the world. And I wonder if it's because of like the fact that I don't have an internal narrative. Like I'm not consciously thinking of grammatical sentences to speak. Mm -hmm. It's way more abstract than that. So I think maybe that might be why I fumble over my words. I don't really know. Yeah. Or just why you have a harder time verbalizing feelings than like I because I do have an, the internal narrative and I am thinking in complete sentences, I'm always pre-rehearsing what I'm about to say. Right. Um, it, to a degree. Um, if it's like, if I'm going to tell, if I'm about to tell a story, like if somebody, if something reminded me and I think, oh, that reminds me of that story, I should tell that. Mm-hmm. I I say the story in my head first, make sure that it's where end up going to end up where I want it to go or like say it how I want it to mm-hmm. and then I say it. Um, oh yeah, I don't do that. And the same thing with a joke. Like if I think of a joke, like yeah. I'll rehearse it in my head. Um, now, I would say that I've I've gotten to the point where now I don't have to pre-rehearse a lot of times, um, mostly out of the fact that I'm trying to listen. Mm-hmm. Like as I've gotten older, it's like I realized that I can't, you can't think about what you're going to say and right. truly listen to somebody. So I, I find myself doing that less and less because I like yeah. am actually – actively listening like you know a mature person does Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh but i will say that many times in my life i know that i would be looking at the person talking but my internal narrative is thinking about all the things and incomplete sentences of how i'm gonna say it i just thought that it was just a really fascinating little tidbit of psychology that i've never heard Mm -hmm. and it just sort of blew my mind that people think in grammatical sentences and like i like i just don't even understand that if i'm i told you like the only time I know that I'm thinking in grammatical sentences is when I was like, like if I'm doing a job or a project that 
is like, like I'm in the flow. I'm saying like, okay, I need to do this and then I need to go here and oh, I need to go grab this or, you know, whatever, but I'm speaking it out loud. It's not in my head. I am speaking out loud. Okay, I have to go do this and then I need this and then, oh yeah, I have to go get this. Mm-hmm. And so that's the only time I can think of where I, but that's not mm-hmm. internal because I'm doing it out loud. Like I have to say it out loud in order for my brain to think it that way. Yeah. I don't really know. My, I have a um, 100% non-educated hypothesis. Um, <laughs> right, that's what I said. None yeah. of this is scientific. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't an educated guess. This is an uneducated uh, guess. <laughs> but I, I was, I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea of consciousness and subconsciousness. Right. So whenever I hear that, um, I, I think about the fact that in order for you to talk to yourself, essentially, yeah, you do it out loud. And that was making me think about consciousness and subconsciousness. And maybe my internal narrative is my consciousness and subconscious uh, speaking to each other internally, yeah. that right. it is one part of my brain talking to another part of my brain internally versus you, because you do not have the, maybe you don't have the ability or you never learned or grew in like you just learned to think different Mm -hmm. than I learned to think and so you are either incapable or don't know how for your subconscious to talk to your conscious internally and so whenever you speak it whenever you're working and you say it out loud it is your like something in your subconscious saying it out loud of like oh yeah we need to go do this and this that is like something internal being verbalized for your other part of your internal to be able to hear it. Right. I don't, it's not that my subconscious doesn't talk to my conscious. It's just that, uh, it talks abstractly. Right. It's like much more, I don't even really know how to explain it. There's only, there's only ever, I've only ever heard one quote that really explains how I think. And, um, it just, the quote is feeling is another way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that is the on- the closest thing I've ever found that like, explains how I think, because that really is it. I think a lot, but I, I don't know. It's different than that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there are two types of people. So which one are you guys? <laughs> yeah. I, um, and after you're done listening, go to a friend or partner and yeah. ask them, do you do have you, an internal narrative? <laughs> do you think? Incomplete sentences. I just thought that was really fascinating. I've never heard that before. It's a shame that there can't be, they haven't figured out or that there probably isn't a way to have more research on that because mm-hmm. it is it is internal and it's based on each individual person, but it's a pretty fascinating idea. That was uh, something we learned this week yep. and fascinated both of us. All right. So let's get to the topic at hand. Mm-hmm. And um, that is I... I feel I know now that I am out of my existential crisis that I've been going through for the last year. It started basically February, March um, last year around my 30th birthday. There was one morning that I we both had gotten up and I was standing there in my underwear looking at my phone intently. And Sarah was like, what are you looking like? What are you reading? Mm-hmm. And I said, um, the definition of existential crisis. <laughs> and she was like, why? It's like, because I think I might be having one. <laughs> and it, I mean, it was like existentialism. It was like, what is life? What is meaning? Right. Why, why am I here? Like, it was that, but it was more wrapped up in like my talents, gifts, abilities, like all of that you know, type of thing that I we were not like thriving as people. We were not thriving as New Yorkers. We were not like thriving in finances, like all of that type of thing. And a lot of these things that we had been thriving in for a long time, right. all of a sudden were gone and it was a struggle and we were struggling. I was struggling in ways that I had never struggled before mm-hmm. and other struggles that I've always had were amplified um, or, you know, in the existentialism, I don't think I've ever thought about that. Like I've always been very centered in who I am, you know, you know strong beliefs in, in hope and trusting. But this season it was like, dark Mm -hmm. um it was this whole year has probably been the darkest point of my life um from everything that i can remember in my life Mm -hmm. this feels as though it was the lowest darkest point and sarah's known me for my entire uh, conscious life essentially Mm -hmm. and would would you back that up yeah i feel like um 
at the beginning, I was, I mean, I didn't really think that much about it because, you know, we were in New York and we were both exhausted and whatever. So I just kind of thought maybe it was that. But then like it kept going and then I felt really weird because uh, I, I told you, I was like, I don't really know how to like handle you right now because I'm the sad one <laughs> and, and I'm the emotional one. And I did, I've never had to like deal with your emotions because mm -hmm. you don't have them, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't really know like what I'm supposed to do here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But it was like it was like a teenage boy seeing his mom cry. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll pat you on the back, I uh, guess. <laughs> I, I I was like, I don't really know what I'm. I don't know what to do because I'm I'm so used to being the existential mm -hmm. person that I didn't really know how to handle somebody else's existentialism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that was that. And and kind of like that twinge of like, um, this is my thing. Yeah, I was like, well, who am I supposed to be in this relationship? Yeah. <laughs> you can't have my spot. <laughs> yeah, so it was a dark season. I mean, it had it had, it had ups and downs. I mean, it wasn't right. like, I mean, you know. It's not like life isn't, life right. isn't all or yeah. nothing. I mean. But overall, it was the lowest um, season. But now, through reflection, I know, I feel like I know why I had the existential crisis. Mm -hmm. um, also, I am actually a three-ish months out of my mm -hmm. crisis. There are many, many, many things mm -hmm. that have happened since coming out that I am working through and in yeah. learning to verbalize and figuring out and all of these things that I'm not going to talk about um, that I feel like they are kind of life message things that I want to sit with craft better and craft um, before I start talking about them. So the, what I'm going to talk about today is essentially what I felt the month at coming out of it. Yeah, well, I just want to um, make a comment because mm -hmm. I don't want to forget. But after you figured out your existential crisis and it was oh, so this whole time I was like, I don't know what to do with you. I need you to figure this out because I don't know how to handle what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then um, you came out of your existential crisis and I was pissed off. Yeah, <laughs> I was really upset because <laughs> I was like. It only took you less than a year to figure your shit out. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? I was so <laughs> mad because I've, I've never figured any of my shit out. And so I, you were like sitting here talking or whatever. And I got really upset, but I uh, thought I was hiding it pretty well. And apparently I wasn't because you asked me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, nothing. I just, I'm really happy for you that you had your epiphany. Yeah, <laughs> but I said in it that in that tone. <laughs> Because I was actually really mad that and you had I, an epiphany, and I was I was anticipating that reaction from Sarah, um, and so like I had it was basically it was probably two weeks after it had happened for me, yeah, that I was feeling really really good, and yeah. I like I was journaling, and I I like everything about my internal life was night and day, right, like fully like lifted into a, a spot of probably even happier than the happiest points of my life. Right. But I kept it. Which is what made me so mad. <laughs> yeah. And I kept it like hidden essentially from yeah. Sarah. Um, and then whenever I did tell her that it was the reaction and I was like, well, I just feel like I've been wanting to tell you this, but I haven't felt like I could tell you it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys, we're not all, you know, good or bad or, mm -hmm. you know. I have a lot of conflicting emotions, so that was one of them. That yeah. It was a very stark example of all of my conflicting feelings. Mm -hmm. It's like very happy for her, her husband, but also- I need you to be out of this, but don't get out of it too soon because you should suffer like me. Yes, exactly. And then whenever I am happy, jealous, like envious yeah, of really the feeling. Yeah, I was really mad. I've been, I feel like I've been in an existential crisis my entire life. And then you were like less than a year and you're like, figured it out. <laughs> Got my whole life in order. I'm like, cool. Yeah. Get out of my face. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I would say that I know now why I had my existential crisis. Um, so I would say in synopsis, it was that at like 
I began to live for myself was was the thing. And that's what sent you in the crisis. Yeah. Um, I have lived a large portion of my life um, living with slash for Jesus mm-hmm. um, in like different seasons. It was I was living for Jesus at different seasons. I was living with Jesus and like depending on how much trust and how much like surrender I was in that moment. Um, but basically since a kid until I turned 30, it was Jesus was never was always either the true north that I was pointed towards or just like slightly off slightly like you know it was you know chasing you know trying to put marriage number one or trying to put Mm -hmm. like work number one trying to you know whatever it was with like Jesus like alongside you know no it was was in the peripheral I held Jesus at the center at best and very close to center at worst is is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And, um, but when we moved to New York City, I slowly started to live more and more for myself. So I, I kind of pushed Jesus further away from the center than I've ever experienced in mm-hmm. my life. And I feel like my, I, my internal being, my soul, um, began to cry out for meaning and purpose and, and those things because I had lost sight mm-hmm. of that center. And because I had put myself in that, you know, essentially my work and my talents, my skills, my, my drive that I've had my whole life, they weren't bringing me the fulfillment that I had subconsciously expected. Right. Because you've always been a very driven, focused individual and whatever you truly, whatever you decided to do, you did and it worked. Mm -hmm. Like that's just always, I mean, that's been your entire life. And so now, well, a couple years ago, um, you did the exact same thing, the same formula that's always worked and then it didn't work Mm -hmm. is basically what happened. And then, well, I guess, except you decided Jesus wasn't as important, but I don't think I decided it. Well, no, he, it just I know like, that's a generalization, right? It, I don't it was mean it that. wasn't a conscious decision. Like I, it it was. It just happens because just other happens. other things, and again, because you're in New York City, which is right. so everything is amplified there, mm-hmm. and everything is crazy, and everything is inspiring, and everything right. is chaotic, and so it just is easy to lose sight of things. Yeah, and so that happened, and the formula that you've always used that has always worked didn't work this Mm -hmm. time and so yeah i think it was you kind of you were just like treading water trying to keep your head above the waves not really understanding what why it wasn't going the way that it has always gone Mm -hmm. for 30 years yeah i i feel like i was very much being humbled um to the fact that i am not as talented as i thought i was Mm -hmm. so without jesus at my center I had nothing but you and myself to fall back on. And neither one of us are the answer to inner peace and fulfillment and contentment. Right. Um, Like I can't keep myself peaceful, let alone another person. Right. So if, you know, if I'm trying to find, if I'm trying to create, you know, inner peace and fulfillment and find contentment through my own work, talent, skills, and drive, you know, myself, I'm putting myself at my center and working and working and working for those things, thinking that those are the things that are going to bring me fulfillment and security and safety and, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, it'll never come. And it leads me, you know, into, I mean- that is essentially the you know falling right. into the existential crisis because th- I, I am I will never ever ever be good enough to fill the hole in you know at the center of my being um, to for that to to flourish and then I can't look to you a human right. um, with your own imperfections and your own like th- weight that mm-hmm. you have to deal with every day and then say hey Sarah there's something of missing inside of me. Um, could you please fill every, you know, right. crack in there? Right. Um, and then that just one leads me to disappointment because there's no way you could possibly live up to that. Mm-hmm. It leads you to resentment or to push away, you know, or whatever it is, because I'm expecting too much. I'm expecting you to be my God. Right. And you are human. Right. It also, I think the existential crisis because of everything, all of this stuff that happened, you were also kind of going through that 
idea of like, well, what is the point of my talents? Because mm-hmm. it's only used commercially. Right. You know, America is a very obviously consumeristic, materialistic culture, which is the opposite of your values. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was also this sort of scrambling to understand where your talents fit inside of a culture that you don't necessarily agree with. Right. Which I think, I mean, I don't know if that was a lot of it or half of it or what, but I do feel like that was a pretty big thing because you've always been very, Mm -hmm. again, confident in who you are as a creator or an artist or whatever you label you want to give yourself. And, and then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, but all of my talents are only used for advertising and I hate advertising. So what does mm-hmm. that mean? And so right. there was like a whole another level right. of that, I think. And again, everything is exaggerated in New York. So it's not like, you know, like whenever you're in uh, a smaller place that's less a, you know, world city, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's a little easier to maybe shift around those ideas um but in new york you can't avoid anything and so i feel like it was just sort of highlighted right even more so right and it was also emphasized by the fact that i had just spent 10 years prior to moving to new york city right using all of me working in the church i was a right. creative director at a church and so my daily job was creating for something much bigger than myself mm-hmm. and much bigger than than advertising mm-hmm. um you know for people to buy products they don't need and when we moved to new york i no longer worked in the church right and started doing youtube mm-hmm. and the way to make money to make a living being a youtuber you have to take brand deals right. and you have to use all of your skills to sell products because right. that's the way that's basically the only way you can survive as right. a, especially a me- small to medium sized YouTuber. Um, adds- Which is why we had so many troubles and like um, dilemmas, I guess. Because that's, that's exactly, I mean, it was like, well, we could do this thing, but that feels so not like us. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you can't preach this idea of minimalism and, you know, whatever. Unconsumeristic mm-hmm. lifestyle and sell things to people. It just doesn't work. Right. And so, yeah, there were a lot of uh, feels like, like moral dilemmas. Like, yeah, moral dilemmas and kind of ideas that were so oxymoronic that mm-hmm. it just didn't make any sense. Yeah. It was like, if I'm going to. It was hard to, d- to decipher. It was basically making the decision of do I compromise myself in order to do this? Right. Like, my, who I am is going left and what I have to do to make money doing this thing is going right. And so do I continue left or do I turn around and abandon, uh, you know, and basically sacrifice um, who I feel that I am for money or for success. And I couldn't reconcile it. Yeah. And I now realize that most of what I was feeling in my existential crisis was because I couldn't reconcile living a life like everyone else all the other you know artists youtuber you know whatever just living life like every other person and knowing what i know to be true about living for jesus mm-hmm. because that is who i am mm-hmm. and i was trying to live the same lifestyle as every other american and expecting different results because i believe in jesus mm-hmm. and i know now that I can't just believe in Jesus and like bring him alongside and say like hop in the back seat and you know like just have that faith of I can live my life just like every other person every other American seeking the same things and succeed because I chose to believe in Jesus while I'm doing it right that's and not that it doesn't work it that doesn't way. work that way um it is you know, living a the life of Jesus. Um, right. And so I was obviously doing the opposite. And like what you were mentioning with the consumerism and, and all of that and like that reconciling that, I had all those feelings. I had all of the feelings of like, I know that consumerism and con- conspicuous consumption and the, the addiction to material things is so wrong. And I can't reconcile that with the 
things that I'm creating. Mm-hmm. And I lost sight of why I felt that way. Mm-hmm. I lost sight of why do I feel so um, strongly against materialism. And so I started searching elsewhere for that. I started looking right. at uh, poets and philosophers of of like from thousands of years Every, ago, from, from hundreds of years ago, for like ever, there has been this thing, you know, in, in certain Anyone people. who has, I guess, you know, been enlightened, uh, philo- philosophers and poets, they all talk about the same things. Mm-hmm. And so it just, yeah. And so I, basically I was like, I knew that I felt all this stuff and I, I knew that it was countercultural but I didn't know why I felt, I forgot why I felt it. Mm-hmm. And so I went on a journey of searching and searching and searching for like, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding different philosophers that that sounded so similar to what I was thinking. And I was like, oh, wow, like that's right, interesting. Like Walden, R- you right. read Walden at this time. And- right, but aside of that, the fact is that I know that to my core, that consumerism is wrong, um, but I forgot the root of that feeling in me is actually from Jesus. Right. I forgot why I felt that. Mm-hmm. And I went searching for why I felt it and, and what to do um, with knowing that consumerism is wrong, but not having an answer of how to escape it. Right. I was like or searching like for it, the answer. What is it? The next step? What's my move for? Right. It's like yeah. I it's like I all I knew it was wrong, but I was searching for how do you escape it? Mm-hmm. And I, I became, basically I began to become disillusioned with the work that I was doing because it primarily relied on advertising. Mm-hmm. And I know that at its core, advertising is literally an attempt to monetize our restlessness, right. our infinite desires. But again, I didn't have a solution to reconcile doing the work I was doing without harming others with advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I almost still don't. Right. I, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, it's such a big thing. Like, it's such a big problem. And it's, again, it is our culture. America is built on right. <laughs> entertainment and materialism and advertising and, and consumeristic lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost impossible to escape it 100%. I don't really know the answer for that, you know, but I think that. The thing that brought you out of your existential crisis, and I think the thing that's most more important, maybe even than finding the answer, is knowing why. Right. And so, and that is your why is what brought you out of the crisis. Right. Exactly. So you can handle when you're not spinning out of control because you have a baseline, mm-hmm. and you can handle everything else. Right. Whereas you didn't have a baseline or you lost your baseline. And so everything else was just like unhandleable. Yeah. I mean, I realized that all of my life-defining and countercultural beliefs Mm -hmm. are actually rooted in Jesus. Yeah. And it was in the forgetting the source that took me into the cave, into the spiral, into the existential crisis. Right. Um, Because I didn't know where all this was coming from inside me. Right. So now when you figured that out, that is like, what brought you out? Were you out of the existential crisis when you figured that out or like you've, you figured that out and then started studying and then you came out of it later? Um, it was all or very was it just sudden. Like, um, it was so fast. Okay. I mean, I do know, I do know for sure that I'm very thankful for my, my past because if I didn't already have personal experiences with God, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to come out of the existential crisis so fast mm-hmm. because even if I did find that the answer was the way of Jesus or, you know, the uh, finding internal quiet, you know, if I figured out that that was the path, it would still take me years of testing that and like m- wondering if like it was the path. Mm-hmm. But because I had a history and because I had so many personal true experiences with God, once I remembered it, once I figured it out, it was like happened so fast. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But then also I think that moving to Portland was very much in God's like plan Mm -hmm. for, you know, this journey that I was on. Whenever we got here, I had this strong desire to go to church, Mm -hmm. um, to find a church. And we went and, you know, searched for a place to go. And we found Bridgetown Church, um, which introduced me to uh, John Mark Comer, who's the teaching pastor there. And I feel like in that moment, God used the work of John Mark to get like 
deep in my soul mm-hmm. and reveal what's true. Mm-hmm. Um, we already yeah, talked about yeah. one, the uh, Garden City. Right. Like that was like in the very beginning. Oh yeah, the, that's about work. Right. And how work is actually important, but different than how we treat it. Right. And, and it was connecting... That brought me out of my uh, thinking of possible nihilism of like yeah. none of this matters right? into like, okay, my talents, gifts, and abilities can, are do matter and they right. will be used for something bigger than myself, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, then, it sort of made you view your work purpose right. better. Right. As as not something like frivolous yeah. and, or, or something that has no real value, that it is a huge part of my value. Mm-hmm. But it is when we put the cart, whenever I put the cart in front of the horse, whenever my value is coming from my work, mm-hmm. um, that will never fulfill. Right. But whenever my work is bringing value, right. that is whenever it does lead to being fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. And another reason I think that moving to Portland was in like the plan mm-hmm. for, you know, my journey was that when we got here, I was able to meet and see so many people that were thinking similarly to how I was thinking, but was also able to see that they were people that I did not want to become. Mm. And so it allowed me to see the bigger picture of this way of thinking leads to being like that. Mm-hmm. And that is not even close to the person that I want to end up being. Mm-hmm. And then uh, John Mark Comer, he released his newest book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it is all about slowing, mm-hmm. a silence, and solitude. Yeah. And I Which have- is what all the poets and philosophers also teach. That's the thing. It's a the silence and solitude mm-hmm. that if you read all of the poets and philosophers, the um, mystics and the theologians and all of these people, they all come to the same conclusion. And that is you need to find quiet. And the thing that um, American culture and I'm sure lots of other cultures do <laughs> is the exact opposite of that. Right. They want they need our distraction in order to run mm-hmm. in the ways in which they've been set up to run. Right. And so basically everything's fighting for our attention, obviously. We all can understand that. TV, social medias, um, YouTube, literally everything that is happening, movies, everything. All the screens. Is fighting for our attention. All of the advertising, all of whatever. And... It's all of that stuff that keeps us from silence and stillness and solitude. Right. And in knowing, in like reading these like philosophers and these poets and all of, you know, as I was in my existential crisis and I was like reading these different people, um, silence and solitude um, and stillness was a overarching theme amongst all of them. Right. Um, And that is in part why, if you go listen to the um, Why We're Leaving New York City podcast, mm-hmm. why the thing that I said, the reason I am leaving New York City is because New York steals all available space right. for external gain or survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to move away so that I can have ample margin for internal growth and exploration. Right. And then we get here. Um, we're able to do that. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we were moving. Right. So we had a lot of things going on. Yeah. We were, you know, obviously doing, getting our apartment together, making videos about the apartment, doing all of these things. I, I mean, I was going, going, going. I well, had, we had just I didn't done really... a month long road trip. So we were like right. coming off of that, editing those videos. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. And so I, I, even though we had moved to a slower place, I had yet to slow down. Right. I was still going at the same speed that I had been essentially. And then... Uh, things were starting to slow down, which is why I was starting to be right. able to see myself right. deeper. Um, but then, like I said, John Montgomery came out with the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and that was the church we were going to. So he was teaching on that on Sunday. Then mm-hmm. I bought his book and I was reading that. And it challenged me to do exactly what I said I was going to do mm-hmm. and find ample margin for internal exploration. Right. 
important. And it was in that first moment of actually finding stillness and quiet and allowing my heart and head to begin to talk to each other and Mm -hmm. get all of the noise out and get all the external stimulations out. Mm -hmm. And it was like within an instant, within a, you know, it was almost It was night and day, yeah. I would say that October, September, October were probably the lowest Mm -hmm. of my existential crisis as a whole. Like it was- Yeah, bad. I mean, I was like kind of- I was falling. That's when I was like, I really need you to figure this out because I don't know how to handle these emotions from you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, like I never cry. Yeah. And it's not because I'm like manly and I like don't want to cry. Like I actively want to cry a lot of times, but I just, it never comes. Yeah. And Sarah saw me cry more times in that month Mm -hmm. than she had ever in my whole life combined. Yeah. And I was like, uh, like deer in headlights. I was like, uh, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. It, it was like, that. it went from, from, you know, being in my lowest point to going even deeper into the lowest point of my lowest point. Yeah. And then sitting in silence and it 100% changed. Mm-hmm. Everything connected. Yeah. All of my, all the things I had been thinking, all the things that I've been missing, all of my, not all of my blind spots, but many Blind spots were revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, many huge blind spots were revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw God, and th- His that light revealed me mm-hmm. and all of my darkness. And so I had two things to go off of in that moment. Was like this new, renewed vision of who God is. And it was completely different from the cerebral experience of faith that I had had before. And it was real and it was connected and it visceral. And having that light shine on me revealed to me all of my shadows. Yeah. And shadows that had never been revealed to me prior to that. Right. That were huge problems in my life, huge problems in Sarah and I's marriage. I mean, I would say essentially I came instantly to the point that I realized all of these huge problems in my life that I've had for years and years and years are not external problems. They are mm-hmm. internal problems and they are they are they are my doing. It isn't that I need to wait for Sarah to figure something out or I need to wait for this thing to happen or I need to wait for that thing to happen or I need to do something to change that. It's right. I need to sit and hear and change internally some things that are keeping me from thriving and keeping us from thriving. Right. And all of that was in a moment, uh, like it just happened so fast and my entire life changed. Mm -hmm. I have since the beginning of November, I have not been the same person that I was before. I have gradually become closer and closer and closer to the person that I want to become Mm -hmm. on the journey of who I want to become. I feel optimism and like healing in myself. I feel optimism and healing in Sarah and I's relationship. I feel extreme optimism and faith and trust in God and the nature of, of meaning and and that for me, that personal spirituality. Yeah. Okay. So in John Mark Comer's book, yeah. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, I think the four major categories are silence. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, oh, Sabbath. and slowing. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, one of the big things that I took from the book, and there's obviously much bigger things than this thing that I took from the book, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's like a good example of um, what he's trying to communicate is that so the average American watches six hours of TV a day, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we were to uh, basically, you know, parent our screen time and all of that stuff, you could read over 200 books a year just on like the average reading time of an adult American. And if you took that and took your TV time and put it toward reading, you would read over 200 books a year, which is like an insane number. It, when you think about it and it just like really blew my mind because I was like I mean I could do better at reading but you know like 100 books is like mm-hmm. a, a lofty goal for 
anybody. Right. But if you if you took your TV time, like how much we spend on average watching movies and stuff, mm-hmm. you would read over easily over 200 books a year. And so it's just like the idea of, I guess, just being aware of what you're actually devoting your time to. Mm-hmm. It's like that um, Mary Oliver quote, attention is the beginning of devotion. So like where you put your attention is where you put your devotion. Right. Is is basically it. And so, and I think he even quotes that mm-hmm. in his book. But just the idea of like, even if I just cut my TV time in half, I would read over a hundred books a year easy. And I would still get to watch one movie per day or whatever it is, you know, like it's crazy to think about. And so I think for me, that's what I got most out of the book is just like the intentionality of your time. You know, like our culture, the way it's run, as I've said a million times in this podcast, all it needs is for you to be busy and distracted so you don't think about your choices. Right. That's what they need from you. And this book, I think, is the opposite. It's saying like, no, you need to truly think about your your choices because where you give your attention is where your devotion goes right yeah so uh, silence and solitude sabbath simplicity and slowing are the answers yeah um but what the pro the you can't just you have to also recognize what sarah is talking about is that the the path forward is not uh to just do those things it is because it's right. almost impossible to just be like okay I'll do yeah, it. exactly. You have to recognize what the actual problem is mm-hmm. and what uh, John Mark Comer is laying out what the problem is, is hurry. Yeah. In the foreword from uh, John Ortberg, he says that hurry is defined as a state of frantic effort one falls into in response to inadequacy, fear, and guilt. Mm-hmm. The simple essence of hurry is too much to do. The good of being delivered from hurry is not simply pleasure but the ability to do calmly and effectively with strength and joy, that which really matters. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. It's just like anytime you feel frantic or, or hurried or busy is because you're feeling inadequate, whatever the other mm-hmm. ones were. Like all of us know that when we're, when we're hurrying, we are not our best selves. You're not kind to other people. You know, you cut people off in traffic, you, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. You're not like your best self. But when you eliminate hurry, you, I don't know, you just see the world better. And so I think it's just a really good uh, formula, honestly, to live a good life. Like silence and solitude, obviously, you need to be able to hear yourself think. Most of us are terrified of that, but like, mm-hmm. That's what you need. Sabbath is just like a day of rest, literally a day of rest. You know, that's all you do. You don't work. You don't, you just rest. You do something that you like to do. You treat yourself mm-hmm. and not in a healthy way. <laughs> right. And not um, a day of not working a job, a day of not working. Right. Like it's not. And it also you, doesn't you, mean like uh, binge not, watch Netflix. It's not like taking the day, you know, you, it's your day off from work. And so you get your errands done and like do all that type right. of stuff. It is this a day, a day off. off. And then simplicity. It's essentially play, a day of play. Yes. Like exactly. we talked about last week. Uh, simplicity is you know, minimalism, it is simplifying your life in material goods, in, you know, things on the calendar, Mm -hmm. uh, every aspect of your life, it's simplifying that. And then slowing, obviously, you you choose to not be in a rush. Mm -hmm. I think he, John Mark uses one of the examples of um, go the speed limit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or like when you're at the grocery store, get in the longest line and just like force yourself to go slow, which mm-hmm. sounds like the worst. I haven't implemented that mm-hmm. part yet. Mm-hmm. I'm still constantly looking at the grocery store like, okay, which one of these is going to go faster? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the point is to teach yourself that you're going to get where you need to go and you don't have to hurry about it. Right. And all of these things are very countercultural to what America deems as uh, success. Right. But- if I look around at the lives of most Americans, they are not lives that I want. Exactly. And if I want a different life, a more fulfilled, content life of love, 
then I have to live counterculturally. Right. Not within culture and add, you know, a sprinkle of faith on it. Right. It's like I have to have faith that the way of living counterculturally is the way to um, finding quiet. Right. And in my personal experience, this is what this is about. My personal experience is that finding quiet is ultimately the most important thing a human could possibly do. Mm -hmm. And that is backed up by hundreds and hundreds of years of different philosophers and poets and artists and theologians and and mystics all saying the exact same thing Mm -hmm. Um, from Francis of Assisi to to Henry David Thoreau um, to Mary Oliver. Yeah. um, Every everywhere. It is all over. And not all of it is tied to the faith of Jesus. Right. It is tied to God. But it is, and I was going to say, God it is. In, in, the, in the definition of that, God is love. Right. It is the the um, mystery of life mm-hmm. that you have to have some sort of reverence for. That is, you know, you don't have to call it God if you don't want to, but that's what it is. You know, it's that mystery and reverence and spirituality that of humanity. Mm-hmm. And stopping and slowing yourself in stillness and silence long enough to be able to hear your internal voice right over your ego over your constantly like your mind that is constantly right. wanting you to keep thinking 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 keep consuming 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 right and whenever we you get to a point where you can have an active schedule practice of getting that turned down enough Mm-hmm. To be able to hear what your heart is saying, right? That is joy. That is contentment. Yeah, and a beautiful place to be. That is where I am now, and want to do anything and everything to keep it. Mm-hmm. Put practices into my life, change everything about my life in order to maintain the peace mm-hmm. that I am feeling, and then also figure out how to share that so that others can find and receive you know whatever you want to say right and i think that's the goal of many of those poets philosophers and mystics and theologians um, as well was like trying to show that to other people right and articulate it so that people could know right and to me at this it's it it is very clear that there is nothing more important than that yeah um so that is uh that's it. Crisis averted. Yeah, um, did the, it. We're, we're out of it. Um, we're here. You're out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of it. Um, Sarah's working on it. <laughs> if you enjoy the show, we would love if you would give us a review on iTunes or share a favorite episode with a friend. You can also partner with us by joining our Patreon at jensenav.club. Um, our intro music is provided by Musicbed. Learn more about Musicbed's unlimited music subscription plan at music.codyjensen.com. Um, Sarah and I also put uh, films on YouTube. You can check out our travel series to uh, London last year or our summer travel series uh, that we did this summer. That's summer twice. (laughs) Um, Or uh, if you're into apartments and uh, interior design, we also just did a uh, interior design series completely redesigning our apartment and putting it all together. You can check that out by going to youtube.com slash Cody Jensen. Thanks for listening to Deep the Curious and we will see you next week. Bye.